the industry is evolving with the vulnerabilities of the grid from cyber terrorism. We're creating a model that involves both the guns and the guards. It's a high call for this type of workforce to be available for our utility going forward. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about energy security, protecting our grid, and some of our most critical power plants. My guest says she got involved with energy security after 9-11. Those of us old enough know exactly where we were that day, and many remember the fog of uncertainty those first few hours. This is a major development. The Federal Aviation Administration has shut down all air traffic nationwide. This country has been immobilized by these terrorist attacks. Were dozens of planes heading for us? Were we at war with another country? What if military bases and power plants were next? I was a senior at LSU studying journalism on 9-11. I just finished a summer internship at New York One News a few weeks before. A few weeks after 9-11, one of my classmates was tapped to log that day's wall-to-wall news coverage for our school's communications department. Every major network for hours on end. She told me she cried a lot. We've discussed the precautions our nation's nuclear industry in particular has taken to be ready for anything. You'll recall one guest told us the nuclear containments are built to withstand a direct airliner strike. That was designed decades ago in case there was an accident. Imagine how prescient that turned out to be. A co-worker once told me you can't even see through the rebar on a nuclear containment, let alone when it's covered with thousands of tons of concrete. My guest has worked with utilities to ensure their staffs are ready for anything. And I pose a few hypothetical and real-world scenarios. Terrorism is still a very real threat. Just a month ago, we saw how a Saudi officer in the U.S. was able to kill three American soldiers. Turns out he was essentially telegraphing his motives on social media. The gunman held extreme anti-American views and posted on Twitter hatred towards Americans for what he perceives as a pro-Israel stance. Do we need to do a better job monitoring these early warning signs? My guess thinks so. What if a loyal employee were to get compromised? (laughs) Remember that Harrison Ford movie, Fire Wall where they kidnap his family to coerce him to rob the bank where he works. I want to know why you're doing this, and I want to know now. I need you to talk to your husband. He listens to you. This is about robbing the bank, isn't it? You have to do whatever they want. I spent 20 years trying to protect this bank. How do you expect to get in and out of here? Speaking of firewalls, my guest says cybersecurity is now one of their chief concerns, not just standing at an entrance with a large caliber weapon. Power plants aren't the only infrastructure that needs protection. What about all those new solar and wind farms? I also talk about storage a lot. More and more of those facilities will come online. What about substations and power lines? The number of targets is only increasing, and there will need to be a plan in place to protect these from potentially spreading to the rest of the grid. My guest says that security Security has to encompass it all, from the physical security to the mental states of the people with the weapons. It all has to be considered.
My guest today is Francina Harris, CEO and Chair for Total Tactical Defense Protection Services, a security firm that has overseen security plans for some of the nation's largest utilities. Francina got her start here in the Carolinas, where I am. I'd heard about her for a while now and had been excited to meet her. As I said, the company got its start after 9-11. They have hired and trained many veterans, former police, and others for roles in the American power industry. One of those efforts was the Nuclear Pro Academy with Alabama State University to create a more intensive training program for all energy sectors. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Francita Harris. We're here with Francina Halris, founder and chair of Total Tactical Defense Protection Services. And Francina, take us from the beginning. It's 9-11, and that's where this company had its beginning, right? That's correct, Jay. 9-11 is exactly how many years? 19. Um, yeah, getting on our 19th. 19 years, and we were called in by Duke Energy in Charlotte right after 9-11. Late September, I received that call. And at that time, they were looking at protecting the assets of the nuclear power plants and vulnerabilities. We were able to come in and create a business model that worked for what they were trying to achieve, securing those power plants. And this was all power plants, right? This wasn't just nuclear power plants? or Nuclear power plants. We started out down there at Oconee down there in South Carolina. We expanded on into the south of Mississippi coal plant, lignite coal, and then Vogel and V.C. Summer as new construction. So we kind of evolved from 9-11 as the industry grew in addressing the vulnerability that existed on nuclear power plants. How much more security is in place since then, pre-9-11? I'd assume that nuclear plants in particular have always been locked down pretty tight, but what's changed since then? Well, a lot has changed. What we've learned over the past 19 years is the highest level of security, just short of the presidential detail. Nuclear is the nucleus within the nucleus. Security has evolved in a lot of safeguards. I'm sure you can appreciate that I can't discuss, but for those that I can, it's evolved more into cyber and drones now, looking at protection with drones. Maritime, as we all know, these power plants must be placed by a large body of water, like ocean, and creating where they all converge to create a job description, basically, for that new talent that we're looking for in the 21st century to protect these plants in the new way. So it's an evolving process. I always thought that most security in these settings were internal. I always thought that NERC would train folks or somebody. Is this a new concept to have a group like yours training security? Prior to 9-11, I personally was in the general staffing area of professionals in corporate America. We created a model there that dealt with diversity and minorities and the strategic goals of a corporation. So when Duke Energy called, it was a natural model to be able to address the compliance issues of American FERC and the NRC, those are driving tenants for any model that you bring into security. So there is a level of training going on NERC and FERC. It always will be. Those are the regulatory bodies of what we do. And the site training is an ongoing security safeguard, seen and unseen upgrades as we evolve through, even now, the situation we have with Iran, China. Everyone has a nuclear weapon. And plutonium, there's Savannah River down there. Uranium, those measures 
are on a constant, continuous improvement process. It's the best way. We call it shift in the industry. <laughs> when we're talking about security at these facilities, what are we talking about? Are we talking about armed guards, waste transportation? How would your team fit? Our team was a unique, you could say a third-party oversight. We brought a value-added contribution to the process, which is very strenuous and very guarded, and clearances and behavior-based training and things like that to pre-vet, pre-qualify, pre-screen, including a lot of our special operations military and Navy SEALs and Navy submarines and law enforcement. We had to create a model that gives another arm to a level of threats and protection 365, 24-7, never shut down. You're down in Florida now. You're in Tampa for a little while. I once visited an IGCC plant owned by Tampa Electric. That's a coal gasification technology, not nuclear. But it was guarded like a nuclear facility. It had guys in front with M16. So what influences level of security like that? What dictates the caliber of gun that's out front? In this industry, it depends on the situation and the location. Now, for us, the Lignite Coal Plant down there, just like the one in Tampa, it's a new facility, and we protect it from the ground up. The vulnerabilities that exist in coal fire plants like that really benefit from a nuclear strategic training and operations plan. It's bringing the highest model into a new situation with coal in rural area, not by the ocean, but oftentimes in a community where folks live and M16 and that <laughs> higher level of weapon, as we call it, and several other weapons that are seen and unseen. The area dictates what level comes to surface in those coal plant facilities. Your company is now getting into cybersecurity. Again, that's something I would assume that would be handled internally. What role are you playing there? In 2014, we reorganized. We were in a position, particularly with the World Institute for Nuclear Security, sitting on the advisory board at NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute in Washington. We discovered where the industry is evolving with the vulnerabilities of the grid from cyber terrorism is a number one driver for cybersecurity measures been put in place. At this stage, we're creating a model that involves both the guns and the guards. You always have to have the physical security. When you look at the vulnerability of the grid and the sophisticated cyber hackers and attackers on our grid is a high call for this type of workforce and supplier force to be available for our utilities going forward in order to protect their assets and people. Cyber. What's the line of demarcation there? Who would you be training exactly in that setting? Our model is set up where we're that extended arm to bridge the gaps that exist. We augment the existing IT departments within the utilities, and we augment also the law enforcement and nuclear security leaders on the specific site. We create that sweet spot where they're insured of a pipeline of skilled and trained and pre-vetted talent that can be accessed and deployed at any given moment, any time of the day, once they're called up for a short-term or long-term position. Our training base has often consisted of many law enforcement and our U.S. military and those that have gone through such programs that prepare the mind 
for this type of work. Is there any kind of screening that you do with the people you train? I think we saw what happened with the situation with the Saudi military guys who were being trained down in Pensacola, you know? Is there any of that going on, background checking? Uh, absolutely. That is a core tenet, pre-qual and pre-vetting individuals should step foot into a facility, even the perimeter areas and not into the protected areas. Yes, there is a pre-vetting and pretty strict mental, psychological, physical, behavior-based, situational-based. Now, the Saudis in that particular situation in Pensacola is the same process, if not even stringent. As you know, there's always a vulnerability, but you look at why and how that happened. The best measures were put in place by our U.S. Navy base and our leaders, but we missed this particular person. Well, I think one of the things that came out was the guys were being pretty obvious about it on Twitter. Yep. So I'm wondering, have you had conversations with people in the industry and in that circle who said, look, maybe we should be looking a little bit more about what these people are saying in these settings. And a lot of times it may be right in front of you. Well, again, it goes back to the question you asked earlier about cybersecurity. I believe that's one of the models that not only nuclear, but the entire industry is a little bit behind on. We have learned through experience that we have to pay more attention to those sensitive areas such as social media and what's going out there. And that was one big component as a result of lack of specific training and what to look for in those areas. We often get these types of disasters that occur. After the fact, we realize there has to be a measure we put in place that would track that consistently as they're developing the worms and the attacks on our grids and on our people, we'll be able to prevent it before being proactive instead of reactive. Certainly. Let's talk about security outside of nuclear plants. What's important to protect against? Against threats and vulnerabilities. They're targeting our people and our assets from the local, regional, state, government. It begs itself for more sophisticated education and training and certifications in seen and unseen areas of our security, such as drones, maritime, and sensitive situations. It's everywhere for Americans today, where it used to be an event, now it has become a lifestyle. It permeates over everything we do. I'd be curious to know, is there ever something that you have worked up where you've got your guys, they have clearance, they can go in the plant, and then say some nefarious actor got to that guy, threatened his family, maybe kidnapped the family, and then that person's under their thumb. Yes, it happens. Without those guys, we wouldn't have security intelligence constantly evolving. You've got Chernobyl, you've got Fukushima, and different other situations that aren't declassified yet that occur. Humans are humans at the end of the day, and that's the most vulnerable point of any security plan is human error in sensitive situations. And you just described one of those situations that the industry is constantly looking at CIP. How do we improve this process? Because it's behavior-based, situational-based training, which is what I love about the nuclear industry. And we've just taken that education and applied it over into other industries that works. 
Power is getting more distributed. Solar farms, wind farms. What kind of security is needed for locations like that? Or because it's so diffuse, maybe we don't worry about it so much. Absolutely, Jay. That is one of the projects we've been working on is the solar and nuclear and how it all works. I'm a firm believer that power transmissions and distributions, as long as any power source is connected to that grid, the grid is overloaded. Any attack could bring down a lot of things. And when you add solar and wind, we think of solar and wind as separate entities outside of the grid, but we have to understand it's also connected to an already overcrowded grid. We have to provide security based on the same principles as you would any other nuclear, any coal, anything else that's connected to the grid, but at the same time, look for an off-the-grid process where we can still enjoy and benefit from our utilities, even when the grid is down for an extended period of time. Well, you talk about the grid, and I work in transmission. One of the last questions I have for you is really this. I've always thought a lot of mischief could be caused outside on transmission lines. They're not surrounded by gates or any physical security. A lot of them are out in the right-of-ways. What can you tell us about transmission and possible security in places like that? They stretch for a lot of miles. They really do, and the attackers understand that sometimes better than we do. They have a typography map, and they understand where these vulnerabilities are and how they are not as protected as the main facilities. We had an incident in Silicon Valley that occurred where the snipers just picked the time and set a strategy and executed shooting at the transmission lines. In the middle of the day and during operations, security was there, everything was in place, but they were successful. So why did that happen? Vulnerability in the process. And I believe as the evolution of protecting our utilities and our communities from this type of attack, we're now more aware of the sophistication of the attack, even in those rural areas. And my personal opinion is the more we can create a roadmap underground, that would be one step towards providing a solution to that problem long term. Sure. Tracy, do you have anything else to add? I was going to go into lightning round. We've got a project with our charity now, Living Life Off the Grid. What will you do as a business and as a family when the grid is down for 24 to 48 months? No electricity. And with every country as we know it today, they have nuclear weapons. And I don't think we can control what we think we can control so our message is, let's get prepared for that moment. What does that mean to the average family living in the community, depending on any utilities, gas, solar, wind, coal, for their livelihood? But I believe when we get prepared, then we will be able to live a much freer life on this planet. That's really exciting, and that notion that you would be without electricity for an extended period of time is something I don't think anyone really could imagine these days. It's funny that you know, 150 years ago, no one would notice, but now it would almost be the end of life as we know it. Absolutely, absolutely. We just need to get prepared. One of the tenets of our charity is empowering our families. I think when we get there, we'll find a good balance in managing all of our security in the world. Francine, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. Your thoughts on natural gas. Important part depends on how we orchestrate and execute the plan. Crude oil. I give it a check mark. <laughs> Nuclear. Number one, yes. 
clean, good for our climate. I think it's 20% of our electricity now in the United States. It may even go up. They're dealing with smaller reactors. I believe that's going to be an up-and-coming tool for us. Coal? It's situational-based. It depends on the environment, the land, the topography. Coal is beneficial in some countries where coal is not beneficial in others, but I think it's equal in the whole of our utilities. Wind. Yes, but off the grid. Solar. Same. Those are natural resources that we need to capture off the grid for sustainable development model for the next generation, yes. Biofuels. We'll see what evolves. There's a lot going on with biofuels. Let's see what happens. Hydroelectric. What happens when the battery goes dead? No electricity. Let's see what happens. Let's see if it's sustainable. Geothermal. Same with geothermal. Sustainability. Energy storage. Very important, particularly when you're looking at natural resources off the grid. How are you going to store the rays from the sun, the energy we receive from the sun? So I think that's a very big one for our future sustainability model and our utilities. Electric vehicles. The question mark. Let's see what happens. It's new. It's cutting edge. We'll see what happens. Energy efficiency. I believe in that. That's a good one. That certainly helps the grid when we can be more efficient in our use of our energy today. And then finally, fusion power. Yes, number one, and I think that's evolving with our scientific analysis of what they receive in our air, land, and sea, and how it can benefit and fit into our sustainable model. I'd watch that one, that's a good one. <laughs> All right, Francina Helris, Total Tactical Defense Protection Services, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jake. Have a great week and a new year. You bet. That was Francita Harris, CEO and Chair for Total Tactical Defense Protection Services. The company has also expanded into the Middle East, Asia, and the UK. Francita mentioned her nonprofit, the Coach Tate Foundation, named after her father, which also focuses on leadership and character building for children in North Carolina. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy, and now Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 76. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how the utility business model is changing on both sides of the Atlantic. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.